chapter 1. Continuing to study this great genealogy in verses 1 to 17 in Matthew 1 this morning. I want to look at this passage today from a specific angle as we did last week. Last week we began mining out the truths and the riches that are in this passage from the first vantage point mentioned by Matthew And that is the royal vantage point that comes through David because Jesus is both literally and, I mean, both physically and legally, I should say, the son of David. He fulfills both of those. So we saw a bit of that last week. We'll continue to see that develop in today's time together as well as next Lord's Day, if the Lord wills. But this morning I want us to look at the promise that is very clearly communicated here in this genealogy. And that is found in the reality that Jesus is not only the son of David as one who is royal, but he is the son of promise because he is the son of Abraham. And so let's pray and ask the Lord for his help this morning, and then we will dive into the word of God. Father, help us now. This is your word. You have written it. It is sufficient. It is inerrant. It is clear. And more than that, you've given us your spirit to illumine our minds and to grant to us understanding. And so, Father, all that we need, we have. Because this word is a perfect reflection of you. You being perfect, give to your children perfect gifts. And so we pray that you would administer this perfect gift to our minds, that our minds would affect our hearts, and that your spirit would have his course with us that we might glorify and bring praise to you and live lives consistent with and worthy of your name because of what we see to be true in Christ. Because we know that all of your promises are yes and amen in your son Jesus. So magnify your son through this time together we ask in his name. Amen. You know, we often, as we are going through John's gospel, particularly We often look at the Jewish people and our jaws are at many points open and we are in absolute shock that they could so greatly miss the point of what Jesus is saying, that they so often miss the point of who Jesus is, that they could know the Old Testament as well as they did, and yet when it comes to the fulfillment of the New Testament, get it so incredibly wrong. And we wag our heads, and we at times might even find ourselves frustrated with their responses. But for all the Jewish people got wrong, and still get wrong today in regards to who Jesus is, there is one thing that you cannot say about them. There is one thing that is true about them that must be acknowledged, and that is this. They are a people who cling to promise. They are a people who still are looking for the promise of the Messiah. You have to give them that. They they took God's word to Eve, and they take God's word to Abraham literally. That God is going to send his Messiah. 
Now, who he was and what he came to do have been tragically missed. Tragically, because everything in this genealogy in Matthew 1 that is nothing more than a recitation and a summary of all the Old Testament tells them everything they need to know in order to acknowledge that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise for which they have waited. Everything. And perhaps nobody embodies this spirit of hope and belief in the promise of God than the man named Simeon in Luke chapter 2. I would love to meet Simeon someday when I get to heaven. Simeon, I think, is the kind of man I want to be like. That, That... When God says it, I believe it. We read in Luke 2.25, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And we know the rest of the story. Simeon, when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to present him at the proper time, Simeon's words are, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have beheld your salvation. What a man that he believed the promises of God. Do you believe the promises of God? I'm not talking about all the crazy promises that people name and claim today, but I'm talking about the promises of God's word as they are fulfilled in Jesus. Do you believe those? Simeon did. This genealogy gives you every reason why you should, but do you? Because Jesus is the Lord's Christ. He is the son of promise. The promise of God is to be believed for one singular reason. And that is this. It's the promise of God. Not because we have scientific proof. Not because we have all of the facts straight. Which we have all of those things. But we believe the promise of God because God is the one making the promise. And his promise is as perfect and as sure as he is. And if God ever fails, it will be the first time. But God has never failed and he never will. His promises, as I said earlier, are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Completely perfect, completely trustworthy. And the promise that God makes throughout the Old Testament that Daniel read for us, the first one in Genesis 3.15, all the way through Abraham, all the way through David, are Take it to the bank sort of promises because God made them. David and the son of David speak to the royal and kingly nature of Christ. And we can look at that and we rejoice in that. Brothers and sisters, we have a king. We don't have a baby. We have a king. That baby spoke the world into existence. That baby took down tyrannical rulers. That baby rules the world. Your next breath is because of that baby who came. All of time will be summed up 
one day in that child who is the Son of God. He is the royal king. And sometimes we look at that and we have trouble relating to that sort of power. That sort of office is beyond us. We don't have kings like that. Not on this earth. There never has been and there never will be until Jesus returns. We don't understand that. We don't possess that. We don't know anyone who does. But what we can relate to is the reality that Jesus is the promise kept. We all know what it is to have promises made. And we know and have experienced on small levels what it is to have that promise kept. And so when God promises Eve in Genesis 3.15, I will send your seed and he will crush the serpent's head. There's a promise. There's something we can hang on to. When God tells Abraham that through his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed because a holy seed would come from him. We can relate to that because we know what promises are and we hope in promises kept. And so this morning, I think that when we understand the nature of what it means that Jesus, here at the beginning of this lineage, is the son of Abraham, I think our hearts can't help but leave rejoicing. Rejoicing that the promised one has come. The son of Abraham is here. The promise has been fulfilled. But I want you to begin looking or considering this with me this morning by looking at the history of the promise. When Matthew writes that the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the the promised one who is the royal son of David, also the son of Abraham, what does that mean? Well, verse 1 clearly links us to the formal beginning of God's promises to the man Abraham. That that God came to Abraham and he forms a covenant relationship with Abraham that cannot be broken. When God goes into covenant, that is a covenant that cannot be broken. Especially when you understand how God makes that covenant, right? When God initiates and formalizes the promise the covenant with Abraham. What part does Abraham play in that as he lays there asleep? Nothing. God is making a promise with himself by which Abraham becomes the beneficiary. That is grace. Something that cannot be broken. And so we understand here at the beginning, this is that sort of a a promise. This is the history of this is that God himself makes the promise, pays the price when the promise is broken so that the promise always will succeed. Because God is involved. Because God is doing this. And he says in the very First mention of it in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Now what has Abram done at this point to deserve this conversation? Nothing. He is a pagan from a pagan land doing the things that pagans do. 
There's nothing righteous in Abraham. God calls him out of his country. Go forth from your country, God says. Go forth from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. How? How? Because I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. But here is how you will become a blessing, Abraham. All the families of the earth will be blessed. How will they be blessed? We have it sitting before us in Matthew 1. That the descendants of Abraham would eventually produce the Messiah. That all who believe the Messiah would be saved. All who believe in the Messiah would be saved. He takes Abraham out at night. Three chapters later in verse 5. He says, Abraham, look up. Look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. So tonight, walk outside and start trying to count the stars. Now we know something Abraham doesn't know. Because Abraham lived in the day before the modern invention of telescopes. And before the the modern advent of rockets that can take telescopes further than terra firma here on earth to look further into space than what we could see even with a telescope from here. And we are discovering stars upon stars in the infinity. And God says, now Abraham, count them. Count them. If you can. But you can't. Such is the the scope of the promise of God to Abraham. All the nations will be blessed. Let me say this, and we'll get to this in a moment. But but to, to confine the promises of God to one ethnic people is grossly, almost impossible to state how grossly underwhelming that would be. You know why? Because Matthew 1 is all about being able to tell you exactly who was descended from Abraham. And they could do that. That doesn't sound like it's more than you can number to me. It sounds like they did number it. It had to be something greater. Something bigger. Something that that expanded beyond the borders of Israel. Beyond an ethnic people. That this promise could not be confined to DNA. This promise goes to all the world in every age. People from every nation and every tribe and every tongue will be counted as heirs of the promise of the Christ who came as a son of Abraham, the first to whom the promise was made. Genesis 18.18 Since Abram Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
Genesis 22:18 In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. How did Abraham obey the voice of God? He believed it Genesis 15:6. But Abraham is simply the latest development of of what Daniel read earlier the promise to Eve. See this this seed this promise this son has a history. One of the phenomenon that we, we now see transpiring among professing Christians today in the United States and in Western Europe in particular is that there is a, a great hunger and a great shift and a desire, especially among younger generations, to know where their faith came from. They want something that is rooted and grounded. Something that is historical and older and bigger than themselves. Such is the promise of God through Abraham. All the way back to the beginning. Notice what God says. I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. I want you to notice two things about this promise to Eve. Number one, it would be the seed singular of the woman. Seed singular. That will become very important as we move through our time this morning. It is the seed of the woman, not the seed of Adam, but the seed of the woman. Secondly, it would be a victorious seed. It would crush the head of of the serpent utterly crush the head of the serpent you know what if you kill a snake but you don't crush its head you better watch out because that thing can still come around and bite you even after it's dead those those reflexes take a long time if for those of you country folk Killed a snake or two? You know what I'm talking about. You can kill a snake and that thing will twitch for a long time. You can even cut its head off and that head will still move and that body will still move and you don't go anywhere near that mouth because it can still bite. Jesus takes care of the problem. He crushes the head. It has no more capacity to bite or wound or harm. He deals with it in entirety. It is a seed of the woman, but it is a victorious seed that cannot lose. That cannot be harmed any further. And it is a promise, again, not only to Abraham because Jesus is his son. It is a promise to Eve, the first woman, the the mother, if you will, of the human race. But I want you to go down to verse 16 in Matthew 1. And I want you to notice something about this promise that it's made to Eve in Genesis 3. That comes through Abraham throughout the book of uh, Genesis and his life. And now down to Matthew 1. I want you to notice how verse 16 is phrased because it matters. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom, referring to Mary, Jesus was born, 
who is called Messiah. Now, if we back up to verse 2, notice how the rest of the individuals referred to in this genealogy are referred to. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father. Everybody's a father until you get to Joseph. Joseph is not a father. Not in the way these other men are. Verse 16 never refers to Joseph as a father, only the husband of Mary by whom Jesus is born. Why? Because God promised it would be the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. Because through Adam's seed comes what? Sin. And sin brings forth death. And Christ is the living, conquering promise of God as the seed of the woman who cannot die. Oh, his humanity died. But Christ, the promise of God, as God, cannot die. This is a promise unlike any other promise the triumph of Abraham's descendant is going to be total and complete because unlike his forebears the promised one has no sin with which to do battle he has only power to conquer my sin and your sin think about that this promise he doesn't have to worry about his own sin he can just deal with ours And he can deal with it in the way that he dealt with the serpent. He can crush it. As the author of Hebrews says, he saves to the uttermost. That is to say, forever. Because he has no sin of his own to be punished for. He comes and he will do battle and he will conquer the sins. As the new song says, our sins, which are many, his mercy is more. His power is more because He is the perfect promise who didn't come by normal and natural means. How many of you have any success in dealing with the sins of other people? Like actually resolving them. Even subduing them a little bit. Some of you are in here going, yeah, yeah. that's because you're not a parent yet. Parents, we know, don't we? You can't corral little hearts. You can't force them to do anything. How many of you are successful in dealing with your own sin? How many of you this past week, never got frustrated, never got angry, never spoke a crossword, never uh, had had a lustful thought, never did anybody? No, you know why? You can't. We are are working overtime trying to deal with our own skin. Can you imagine trying to deal with someone else's? See, Jesus has none. 
Because he is not descended as the son of promise from man, but from God through the woman, so that it is her literal, physical seed that is still related to David, that is still from Abraham, but having no sin, not having that all-consuming battle to fight, he fights ours. Listen, we are under the serpent. There's no way we're crushing the serpent. We need one who is over the serpent to crush the serpent. And that is exactly what the promise says. He will crush and he has crushed the head of the serpent. And thus put an end to the carnage that the serpent deals. From Eve to Abraham, the promised one has demonstrated overcoming power. From Abraham to us, all the nations now experience the crushing, glorious power of the promised one. So when you look and you see, oh, he's the son of Abraham, that's neat. Oh, he can trace his lineage to Abraham, how wonderful. We're interested in much more than Ancestry.com. We're interested in the power of the promise. The uniqueness of the promise. There is the history of the promise. Now note the fulfillment of the promise. And that is this, that God's plan has never, ever been small. It's large. It's larger than we can comprehend. It's as expansive as the one who promised it. If it is as sure as the one who's promised it, if it is as guaranteed and perfect as God is, then it is also as big as God is. How big is God? How big and wide His vast domain, as the old song says. How big? We'll never know. You can run your mind out as far as your mind can go and you're still not even past the starting line. The bigness of God, the promise is as expansive and as big as the person. Now listen, when we, when we look at this uh, genealogy, the, the focus could very quickly become lost in the intrigue of all the names. And we'll get to this next week because there's a lot of intrigue here. There's a lot of stuff that, 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 that is important, yes. That tells us what we need to know, yes. But it's not the point. It is an illustration of the point. And so we need not get lost in all of those things. What we need to understand is that the fulfillment of the promise is here. And it isn't a person It's always been on Christ. And we read this and we know this. I think everybody in this room would read this and say, I I understand that uh, the point is Christ. I mean, after all, verse 18, right? I mean, we're immediately into the birth narrative. We get that that's what's going on. We can read verse 1, Brian. Tells us. Gives us the answer up front. But, But do we really... Understand that the scope of the promise and what it means that that promise is fulfilled in Christ 
it, 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 this, it, it overshadows everything that we tend to lose sight of in the midst of all these other names. The promise of God in the person of Christ is so big and so large that we need to, to be careful that we don't in any way restrict it. It's not about the people who came before Jesus. It's not about the ethnically Jewish nation that came forth from Abraham's offspring. Again, that would be to make it too small because we could produce genealogies that would come very close to counting the number. God says to Abraham, uh, you're not even going to get close. But because the promise of God is in a person, not a sterile lineage. The the promise is in Christ. Christ is the true descendant. He is the true Israel of God. He is that singular seed, not seeds. You see, what we have in Matthew 1 are seeds. Branches, names, but Christ is singular. He is the seed of the woman. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the final fulfillment of the promise. And you say, no, hang on. How would you prove that? I can't. But God does. Through Paul. In Galatians 3, verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. You know what God is concerned with in his promises? One man. One man. His son. Jesus Christ. The seed of Abraham. He is the true and truest offspring of Abraham. He is the truest king of of David. You see, there were a lot of other kings between Jesus and David, but Jesus is the final king. He is the ultimate king, singular. We're not concerned with everybody that came between Jesus and David. We're not ultimately concerned with everybody who came between Jesus and Abraham. We are concerned that both the king and the promise of the king is good, and we are sure that the promise in the covenant of God to Abraham is sure, and it is all in Christ, as Paul says. Now here is the takeaway. Because through one man... All the nations can be blessed. Every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. If we misread Matthew 1 through the narrow eyes and the restricted eyes that the promise to Abraham 
primarily refers only to the Jewish nation, we have read this wrong. It is to Christ, and in Christ, all nations. Do you see that? How big is the promise of God? Global. There's nobody outside of the promise of God. There's nobody who can't get in because they weren't part of the promise. This is not your will. Where only the people written in the will benefit from the will. This is for all the nations. That's why Jesus can say in Matthew 28, Go, therefore, into Israel. That was never the point. Go into all the world and make disciples. Not just here. Acts 1.8, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, not just in Samaria, but to the uttermost parts of the world. Places you don't even know exist yet. Go into those places. Why? The scope is that large. The termination of the promise of God is Christ. Therefore, everybody in Christ is the beneficiary of the promise. The New Testament labors... Over position to be in Christ, to be in Christ, to be in Christ. Just do a little Google search, put it in parentheses. I'm sorry, sorry, quotation marks. Put it in quotation marks, put in Christ, all the verses in the Bible that mention in Christ or in Him, you'll be there all day. Because that's the point. The point is that the promise is Him. And everyone in Him, by faith, experiences the blessings of the promise of God. And that will be so many. It'll be like trying to count the stars in the sky. It'll be like trying to count grains of sand on the seashore. I've got bad news for you. If you go to the beach, you're going to be counting that trip for the rest of your natural born life. Because every time you open that suitcase that went to the beach with you, little pieces are going to fall out. And it's going to annoy you to no end. Count every grain. Not just on the beach you went to. But every beach around the world, the bottom of every ocean around the world, the sand dunes and monahans, count every grain and then you'll have some idea the magnitude of the promise of God. But it won't even be a start. The magnitude of the promise is the one making the promise and the promise fulfilled in Christ, God Himself, so large, so powerful, so massive that every nation and tribe and tongue can drink from it and be satisfied and eternally saved. You know what our problem is? Our problem is that our view of God is too small. Our problem is not 
not that we have figured God out and we're getting bored. Our problem is that we haven't even begun to think about God in all of His expansiveness, in all of His glory, in all of His promises. This promise is given to Abraham, one man, to produce one man, so that in one man all the nations, everyone in him could be blessed and will be. And that includes you and I. I have no claim that I am aware of to being a physical descendant of Abraham. I'm not Jewish. And I don't think any of you are. You may be. I don't know. You've never told me if you are. Imagine the promises of God being confined to that. Impressive, maybe. But small. How big is God? Therefore, how big the promises of God? How vast, how rich, how deep, how full. How eternal. How life transforming and life changing. This is the pattern of God. And throughout the history of scripture, God continues to prove that not only does he make promises, but he keeps them. I'm not going to ask because it would be redundant to do so, to have you answer. How many of you have ever had a promise broken to you? That's all of us. How many of you have ever broken a promise? All of us. Not God. And not God, particularly in Christ, who is the apex of all his promises, as the son of Abraham is here. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, For as many as are the promises of God. Now let's stop and think about that. How many promises has God made? Could you name all the promises that God made? I've got a book sitting on one of my shelves back in my office. I have an encyclopedia set that was written a long, long time ago by a man by the last name of Lockyer. And I just call it the All Series because every volume, it's all the men and women of the Bible. It's every name cataloged. All the this of Scripture and all the that of Scripture and all this of Scripture. And he has one volume entitled All the Promises of the Bible. You know what I guarantee? He missed one. At least one. Because who could number the promises of God? Who could, who could quantify the faithfulness of God? None of us. Because it's that expansive. But notice what Paul says, for as many as are the promises of God. Paul says, I'm referring to every single promise that God has made. More than you'll ever know. 
More than you can ever comprehend. Listen to Paul's next phrase. In Him. In Christ. They are yes. They are fulfilled. Every promise of God. Is fulfilled in Jesus. If the promises of God are so expansive and massive, we cannot know them. What does this say of the man who fulfills them? Even more incomprehensible. Even more glorious. Paul goes on, therefore also through him is our amen. Our final word of agreement that everything, that our hope, that our trust, everything is to the glory of God in Christ through us. Is Christ the fulfillment like that for you? Is all of your hope bound up in him? Is all of your view of the promises of God and the faithfulness of God and the greatness of God and the bigness of God wrapped up in Jesus? If it's not, it should be. Because this is the end of what it means to be the son of Abraham. That everything is yes and amen in Christ to the glory of God. See, the question is not, has God been faithful? Did God do this right? They always say there's no such thing as a stupid question, but that's dangerously close. Because the answer is a resounding, absolutely. The question is not, has God? The question is, do you believe it? Do do you glory in it? Do you Do you just rest? Do you drink from? Do you love? Do you meditate upon the greatness, the bigness, the glory of God, the promise maker in His Son, Jesus, for you? Have you ever been in shock? Something happens. Something is told to you and you're literally, you don't remember anything that happens for a period of time after that. You don't remember where you went. You don't remember how you got there. You don't remember anybody saying anything to you. And they remind you later, Why didn't you do that? And you said, I don't remember you saying that. Well, I said it right to your face and you said, uh-huh. You know, I, if we could grasp what, what is being communicated here of Christ as the fulfillment of the promise, I, it would be a shock so gloriously big to us. I don't think we would care what happened the rest of our lives. We would just be in awe. We wouldn't care what happened the rest of this Christmas season. We'd just sit around staring 
at a Christmas tree, not comprehending that it's even there because our mind is so engaged with the promised one. We wouldn't care what's under a tree. We wouldn't care about the the toils and the trials of 2024. We don't care about any of it because we've understood that the bomb has exploded upon us, that the promise of God has been fulfilled in Christ forever. And good luck trying to get to the bottom of it because you can't. It's that glorious, it's that good, it's that large. And for those of us who do believe and we take God at his word as Abraham did as an example to us, Genesis 15, 6. For those of us who do believe, there's no greater joy for us this Christmas season, is there? Than a salvation that is that rich, that is that old, that is that fulfilling that rests so perfectly on a perfect man who is God and God and man. And it rests in Him and He cannot fail and He will not fail. One word, final word of exhortation. It's not up to you to figure it all out in order to benefit from it. You can't get to the bottom of it. Salvation does not hinge on having it all figured out. It hinges on one thing. Abraham believed God. Period. And it was credited to him as righteousness. The promise is credited to us when we believe. I don't know everything about the scripture. I certainly don't know everything about God. But this I know, the promise has come. The fulfillment of God has come. And all of God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, by believing Him, I have everything. Whether I can comprehend it or not. It is yes in Christ. Do you believe Christ? Do you believe God and what He has done in Christ? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ is the promised one of God who fulfills those things? Then count yourself as a grain of sand or a star. You're one of the many innumerable hosts that cannot be numbered. In the one who fulfills the promise. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Christ. Thank You for the immeasurable comfort that He is, the assurance that He is to us as Son of Abraham, as Son of the promise. May our hearts be saddled and burdened joyously so with a sense of awe at who Christ Jesus is. Not just today, not for five minutes after the service, not just for this week, but for all of our lives. May the glorious greatness of our God in Christ 
bring a lifetime of meditation and contemplation of who Jesus is. May we, Father, by your work, always be people characterized by belief and faith. We know our faith doesn't even come from ourselves. So, Father, grant us eyes always to see hearts that believe your fulfillment of the promise in Jesus. And we ask this so that glory and honor and dominion and power and praise would be given back to him, the only one who is worthy of it. Both in what we think, what we believe, what we say, and what we do. May Christ be magnified. We ask this all in his precious name. Amen.